My name is Todd Langworthy, and I am the historian for the town of Pomfret. I've been the historian here since 2005. The town of Pomfret is located in the western New York. We go right up against Lake Erie for a little bit of a stretch. We're south of Buffalo, located about halfway between Buffalo and Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm a retired school teacher. I was a history teacher at Forestville High School. Currently, I'm a part-time adjunct professor at the SUNY College at Fredonia. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We are talking about Pomfret a town in western New York. And I noticed uh, I'm always sort of keen to try to get a, a good pronunciation. I was saying more like palm fret, but I noticed you said palm frit. Yeah, I think most people pronounce it almost like an I, but I, I think it's just a, it's got probably a little bit quicker way that when people pronounce it, it's just it comes out as palm frit. I think either way is okay, but I think most people in the area, it comes out sounding a little more like an I probably. And actually, mo- most people in the area usually don't use the word pomfret a whole lot really because most of the town is encompassed with the village of Fredonia uh, which lies within uh, the township so most people refer to our area as Fredonia I think for the most part although there is a lot more to the town than just the village but uh, that's by far a big a big part of the town. Well that's that's interesting because I know a, a person I told you I worked for the state university at one time and I know a person who went to the to SUNY Fredonia and I said, I'm gonna to talk to the town historian of Pomfret and she said, Pomfret, what's Pomfret? You know yeah. <laughs> That's very often the case. Yeah, a lot of people they, they um, you know, Pomfret isn't really anything that's really promoted a, a, a lot. I mean it's more the village of Fredonia and then our surrounding community that's a part of it um, also I think gets kind of tied to Fredonia a little bit with, with like the exception say of like Lilydale for example and other things. So. Well I have a number of uh, historical aspects I'd like to discuss with you. Lilydale is one of them and uh, the concept of spiritualism to agriculture, energy and, uh, and social change. But what kind of started me on the path to getting a hold of someone from Pomfret was I was reading a fairly recent New Yorker article on recent books about spiritualism, talking to to the dead. And Western New York is big in this movement. One of the places where it's big is a portion, I guess, of the town of Pomfret called Lilydale. What can you tell us about Lilydale? Well, Lilydale, and uh, years back I used to work uh, at Lilydale. I uh, used to work at the gate as a teacher. I, I always would usually have a summer job to keep me out of trouble, and uh, one of my summer jobs was to work at the gate at Lilydale, and the people there were always wonderful to me, and it's a it's a gated community. For many people out of the area that aren't familiar with Lilydale, they might be familiar with Chautauqua Institution, which is not far away from us as well. That's about a half-hour drive from, from Fredonia. And uh, Lilydale is very similar as far as the overall like arrangement to uh, Chautauqua Institution. It's a gated community uh, that operates a summer season, very much like uh, Chautauqua, but nowhere near like the scope of what Chautauqua uh, offers. But Lilydale's a gated private community. Um, it was actually the the founders from Lilydale actually uh, were from a nearby what today would be called a hamlet called Leona, which is just outside of Fredonia. It's almost like a four corners, really, today, but back in the 19th century was larger. And um, the founders of Lilydale actually are more from the Leona area, which is kind of between 
Fredonia and what is today Lilydale, and eventually uh, became known as the Lilydale Assembly, as it's known today. But uh, originally, Society of Free Thinkers or the Spiritualist was kind of how they were identified in, in the early years. A man by the name of Willard Alden uh, donated uh, some land uh, along Casadega Lake, which is where the assembly is located today, and then eventually more land was purchased. Uh, Willard Alden was one of the early leaders in the group, and then another lady by the name of Marion Skidmore is often very, very much known as kind of one of the founders, really, of Lilydale and was responsible for the early growth uh, of the community um, by getting people uh, to come and speak there. And she was very well known as getting speakers from all over the world, actually, to come and speak at Lilydale women's rights leaders and things from the late 19th century, Susan B. Anthony, people like that, that that she was able to get to come and speak at Lilydale. It gave it a lot of its early kind of luster. And um, Lilydale was actually growing in the 1870s, 1880s, right around the same time as Chautauqua Institution, uh, which is only about 20, 25 minutes away from Lilydale, uh, right around the same time period. And, of course, uh, with Chautauqua Institution, that was a summer camp as well, which is how Lilydale started. That was a summer camp for Sunday school teachers um, founded by Methodists. And uh, I used to be a tour guide over at Chautauqua Institution, so it, it always kind of uh, was very interesting to me how these two communities that are not very far apart kind of grew around the same time period, you know, based on you know, kind of a similar model of having this summer camp community um, for people of, of common interest, and um, that's exactly what Lilydale, you know, started as and has become uh, kind of this small gated community that, that is closed in the summer. It's not open to the public uh, unless you pay the gate fee, just like at Chautauqua Institution. And, of course, when the season is over, then the, the gate not manned anymore, and then people just go back and forth through the gate mm-hmm. as, as normal. Uh, a little bit of the kind of the founding right. of Lilydale's. Well, I, well, one thing that interested me, you said Susan B. Anthony spoke there. Did she speak about spiritualism or did she speak about women's rights? More women's rights, I, I believe. Yeah, she. I don't think she was uh, associated as being a spiritualist, but I think Mrs. Skidmore was you know, very well known to many of the women's rights leaders as kind of you know, during a time in the late 19th century when women that were seen as very strong, you know, leaders were much fewer and far between than what we know today. So I think a lot of these women tended to, I guess what we would say, network uh, today. And many of these women supported each other, you know, in their, their crusades, whether it would be, you know, um, in the spiritualist uh, or women's rights or, um, like something else that we may talk about, the uh, WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, so I think a lot of these women supported each other, even though they may not mm-hmm, have sure. the exact same goals. But I think a lot of them in that time frame supported each other and were, you know, very, very eager to uh, help other women that were leading causes. So. Well, before we leave Lilydale, if you will, I mean, I realize maybe this isn't your quote-unquote thing. What is spiritualism? Try to not get too, because it, it is it is a religion, and I, I try to not get too much into the religions, but uh, basically the it's the idea that people uh, can speak with others that have passed on, that certain people, not everyone, but certain people have kind of a gift to be able to be able to 
kind of communicate with those that have passed on. I, you know, in the years of working at Lilydale, I know that, you know, many of the mediums that live on the grounds there, you know, feel that like they've been given a gift to do this, that not everybody is maybe able to do it or ever realizes that they have the ability to do it. Um, it is something that has to be kind of cultivated, and uh, they have classes and things that they give, and being able to develop that skill, it's something that you have. I mean, I, uh, there's, a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion uh, about spiritualism, you know, going back to, I think most people's first introduction to spiritualism was probably Harry Houdini. Um, if you remember Harry Houdini, and, and his whole uh, premise was that they were, you know, they were people that were trying to take advantage of the public, and and that he thought that they were just nothing more than vaudeville entertainers that didn't that did a particular mm-hmm. trick, um, and he said that he knew <laughs> he knew all their tricks and that they weren't going to fool him. And I think that would be another discussion. But I think that's where most people kind of originally got their introduction mm-hmm. to spiritualism. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's much, much, much more than that. It's kind of that thought that you can communicate with those um, that have passed on, and you know, there's actually another Lilydale community in Florida, and many of the, the uh, residents that live in Lilydale here, uh, they travel back and forth. They winter in Florida, in the Lilydale in Florida, and then they come up and live here in the summertime in their ah. uh, homes in Lilydale here. So, Well, you mentioned what something that will be an, another topic about the town of Pomfret in western New York. You brought up the WCTU, the Women's Christian uh, Temperance Union. We did a podcast with the professor, I think his name is Charles Postol, who had, had written a book about the WCTU and other movements of the late 19th century. What is the connection between Pomfret and the Women's Christian uh, Temperance Union? Yeah, the WCTU actually founded here in Chautauqua County. Interestingly enough, there, there were some people from uh, Chautauqua Institution that were a part of that. There was a connection there as well as Lilydale. Um, some of these early leaders in the WCTU and actually got its start here in the Fredonia Baptist Church where they, they started to have their first organized meetings and then, of course, went on to you know national meetings as well. So, I mean, our area is known as kind of the birthplace of the WCTU. Um, and I think a lot of it has to, to do with people like Marion Skidmore and other women's rights leaders um, that also started in this area and having those common connections. You know, there's, there's a lot of those, when you go back and being a history teacher and you go back and look at many of these people, like a Susan B. Anthony or any of the other, um, you know, ladies that were a part of these different movements in the late 19th century, there was a lot of overlap, whether it be, you know, the... Uh, the WCTU and their, their, you know, struggle with alcohol abuse and trying to uh, fight against that. Women's rights, just in general, you know, the anti-slavery movement, even going back into the years before the Civil War. I mean, a lot of these women were part of multiple movements. Um, it wasn't like they, they, you know, they just stuck to one. Many of them were involved um, in numerous movements in the late 19th century. And I think um, the WCTU, um, with some of the women that were from our community, was just another thing that they were interested in, and it just happened to really take hold here in our area. And uh, the Fredonia Baptist Church is seen as kind of the original 
meeting place for that um, for that organization. The one name that I know of from the WCTU, uh, from Professor Postal, Charles Postal, the, who wrote the book called Equality in American Dilemma, uh, is... So, is Frances Willard? Does that name ring a bell with you, or is, did she, was yeah. she from or, or work in Fredonia? Um, I believe I believe she spoke at Lilydale. I'd have to double check that to be sure, but I believe that she is another one of those early uh, women's leaders in different movements that spoke, like at say at Lilydale, for example, and others that also spoke at uh, Chautauqua Institution as well. And I think it's just that. You know, our area seemed to be kind of a magnet um, for many of these uh, women uh, that were a part of these movements. And uh, her name is one I'm familiar with, yeah, and I believe mm-hmm. that she did. Um, I'm fairly certain that she did speak at Lilydale at, at one point and probably also at Chautauqua. But, uh, yeah, that was the, the time of these meetings uh, around the country at many different places where speakers would come and... and try to share information on their cause as far as what they were doing, trying to gain people, you know, to support them and what they were doing, whether it was the fight against alcohol abuse or, or other things, uh, the treatment of women in general, things like that. And I, I think that, you know, there were many of these women that um, definitely were uh, mm-hmm. kind of traveling the circuit, um, going and speaking in different areas like Lilydale sure. um, and Chautauqua. Well, you know, and this just occurred to me in terms of Lilydale and Chautauqua and, of course, many other things. How did these places fare in the pandemic? Could people come and, and hear the talks and so forth? Yeah, very, very limited schedule. I know in Lilydale's case, most of their things all took place online. I know in the, in the case of Chautauqua last year, they did a few things in person, but not much. A lot of it was virtual. And, you know, I think they just tried to, I guess, for lack of a better term, batten down the hatches to try to survive the storm last year. And this year looks like they're maybe not 100% back to normal, but... I would say probably at least maybe 75%. There's still some things they might not be able to do, but I know in the case of Chautauqua Institution, they're, you know, they're, they're picking up the torch for live, you know, live events again. Um, and I know Lilydale is planning on doing you know, more than they did last year as well. So it's kind of a slow road back, but I, I think that things are coming back to normal. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they you know they survived by being online, like like just about everyone else, I think. Last sure. Year. We're talking with Todd Langworthy. He's historian of the town of Pomfret in Chautauqua County in uh, Western New York. Another organization uh, that is has a link to Pomfret is the Grange, the Farmers Grange. Uh, you told me when we were setting this up, I think, uh, that you actually you belong to a Grange. Yes, I'm a member of Fredonia Grange Number 1, the first local grange in the world, um, and I am a proud member of the grange. <laughs> it's something that we are known for, uh, for just because of the fact that when grange members all around the country and even the world, there are uh, granges in other countries as well, you know, when they look at the list of granges, and of course, number one is Fredonia, and it really kind of gives us uh, some notoriety as being the first local Grange. And um, for those that aren't familiar with the Grange uh, movement, it started in the years after the Civil War. Government worker by the name of Oliver Hudson Kelly is kind of seen as being like the, the father of the Grange movement. And it was his idea that he convinced the government that they needed some sort of a, uh, a national organization 
that would try to pull people together in the years after the Civil War, and especially farmers, rural areas where uh, it just seemed like there was a disconnect. Uh, many many uh, farmers in rural areas didn't really know a lot about what was going on nationally, and there was a lot of misinformation out there after the Civil War, and of course, especially in the South, that to try to build this brotherhood of farmers across the country was looked at as being something that would be very important to the Reconstruction uh, period. And Oliver Hudson Kelly was the uh, government official that really championed that and uh, worked to create uh, this national organization. And Fredonia kind of comes into this whole movement kind of somewhat by luck. And a, a local grape farmer by the name of Adil Moss started corresponding with Oliver Hudson Kelly when he had heard about this movement um, that was uh, beginning at the end of 1867 um, in Washington uh, by uh, Mr. Kelly. And he started corresponding with him and actually got uh, Mr. Kelly to visit Fredonia in April of 1868. Mr. Kelly, when he visited Fredonia, was so impressed by the local farmers that Mr. Moss had kind of organized that were behind this movement and thought this would be a wonderful idea for us to be able to connect with farmers all across, not only the north, but also the south, to champion causes that are that are important to all of us, that uh, Mr. Kelly, at the urging of Adil Moss, our local farmer, said, well, you have enough people here that if you would like, we can form a local grange right here, right now. And they did, and that was Fredonia Grange Number One's uh, birth in April of 1868, mm. and uh, that's why Fredonia Grange Number One is the first grange in the world, is because of that uh, work by our local farmer Adil Moss and uh, the visit of uh, Oliver Hudson Kelly, who was the man really behind this whole idea um, that worked for the federal government at that time. So, so that's how Fredonia Grange Number One was born, and um, the the Grange movement today. Not as popular as, of course, it was in the late 19th century. Um, similar, similar goals, actually. Still, the Grange today still uh, works for um, issues uh, that are important to farmers and rural communities especially. One of the biggest things, of course, today for the Grange is providing broadband Internet service to rural areas. That's a huge uh, cause that the Grange nationally has taken on. Um, and it's very important. And I think during COVID, a lot of people realized how critical that is, especially in Chautauqua County, where we still have a lot of areas that don't have good Internet uh, coverage. And mm -hmm. with people having to be online, we found that it was a bigger problem even, I think, than we thought. So I, I think, you know, that's one of the things for us, us Grangers today is like you know, something we've been preaching for a while now is that, you see, <laughs> this is an yep. important issue. It needs to be addressed. So. So, yeah, so that's a little about our Fredonia Grange number one. And Grange means uh, a large barn or something, or it's an old word that means barn? Yeah, it's something that was that was used, I think, by farmers in the 19th century as, as kind of a catch-all term for like a place to place to gather or farmer farmers to gather. And I, I think that was kind of where the term came from, I believe. Yeah. Let me ask you about what is now SUNY uh, Fredonia. I gather that higher education in Fredonia goes back to the Fredonia Academy? Yes, the Fredonia Academy was our, our first 
school located here in Fredonia, and um, it started actually before Fredonia was really even incorporated. Um, it started, uh, the village of Fredonia wasn't incorporated until 1829, and the school had started years before that, but the uh, Fredonia Academy lasted through the Civil War, and then uh, eventually what happened was they started to have a lack of students, lack of funding, and the school was kind of more or less on the brink of closing and was going to close. And then at that time, uh, the uh, state of New York started the uh, state normal school um, mm -hmm. program, uh, which was, for the most part, it was a teacher's college uh, idea. And Fredonia applied to get one of these uh, teachers' colleges and was awarded one. You know, I think in Fredonia we pride ourselves in having this long string of uh, education locally, and it started with, the, it's kind of the, the, the triumvirate of the Fredonia Academy, then replaced by the Fredonia Normal School, which was part of the normal school movement with the state and having a normal school here, which eventually in the early 20th century then started to transition into what we know today as the SUNY system. And the Fredonia Normal School transitioned then into uh, what we know today as SUNY Fredonia. Um, so it was kind of a gradual progression um, from those three institutions that are all connected. And uh, if you go on the SUNY Fredonia website and, and uh, their history, that that's exactly how SUNY Fredonia portrays it, is that, you know, Fredonia has a long history of, ed of a commitment to education going back from the academy to the normal school to SUNY Fredonia today. And uh, I think, you know, that's, that's a good way to kind of look at it, um, is that it's just by a progression from the very earliest settlers that that founded the Fredonia Academy that knew that education needed to be a, a big part of this community for it to grow. Would you say, is SUNY Fredonia the biggest employer uh, in your area? At this point, I would say yes. I, th I think so, yeah, because of the fact that um, we have, like, you know, like many uh, communities in New York State, uh, we've gone through losing a, a lot of the industry. We had a large employer carriage house that, that closed a few years back, and it's maybe eight or nine years now it's been closed, that was located in the village of Fredonia, and it still more or less sits vacant. Uh, it was a uh, food production plant uh, that employed hundreds of people, and uh, that that closed, and that was a that was a big blow to the area. So there's been others as well. Uh, Petrie Baking in Silver Creek, which is about 15 minutes away, that closed. That was a large food production plant as well. There's talk that that's going to be reopening soon, possibly on a smaller scale, so... So, yeah, with the, the closures, uh, definitely the college would probably be the biggest employer. Um, it's kind of a standing joke here in, in town of Fredonia that if something was to ever happen, if the SUNY system uh, decided to close the campus of Fredonia, that you could probably roll the sidewalks up of Fredonia, yeah. and that would be the end of it, because <laughs> there wouldn't, um, be mu wouldn't be much left to keep, to keep things going. But I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. We have... Uh, well over 4,000 students, and we're shooting for 6,000 in the next three or four years. So, <laughs> Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, And I'm just fascinated by the names. Uh, they, they, they seem a little unusual or, or poetic or something. Pomfret, Fredonia, Lilydale. Where do yeah. these names come from? Yeah, now, when, uh, when you look back at, say, like the, the name Fredonia, there was actually a movement in the early 19th century to... Renamed the United States Fredonia, 
<laughs> it wasn't. It never caught on like widespread support, but it was something because the the Fredonia, the name of the word Fredon, the name Fredonia itself has like the, a Latin origin in like freedom, like land of freedom, and the uh, Fredon being like freedom, and the the IA at the end kind of like just like expanded a little bit to make it sound a little more eloquent, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there are other Fredonias around the United States, and I think many of them—I uh, don't want to say stole—but they took that idea as being like, "Wow, that sounds like a great name for a community, like Land of Freedom." And even though it didn't become the name of the United States, it did become the name of many communities, like our community here in Fredonia. Um, and the leaders um, in Fredonia uh, voted to change the name. Uh, years before it actually became incorporated, um, the original name of the community here is Canada Way, which is a Native American name. Um, it's okay. a, it basically is like a, the land of the hemlocks. Um, and uh, it's not, in, in Native American, it's not spelled like it is in, in English, like with a C, like just like you would think Canada Way. Um, it's, it's spelled actually more with a G, uh, with my Native American friends, they they pointed out, <laughs> like, it's not spelled right. the same at all, I go, I realize. <laughs> but uh, it's basically uh, a story that the founders here in Fredonia, with the name originally being Canada Way and being a Native American name, they didn't like that because they didn't want the association with the Native American. They wanted it to sound more European, oh. more more... Uh, cultured, because that was the kind of settlers that they wanted to come here. So the name Fredonia was discussed, and eventually, I believe it was in 1816, that the, the community actually had a vote and said, yes, we're going to start calling ourselves Fredonia now. And that's what they did. And then the village was incorporated officially by the state in 1829. Um, right. and it officially became Fredonia. But yes. they were calling themselves Fredonians for years before that, um, just because mm-hmm. of they wanted to disassoci- disassociate themselves with the name Canada Way, which is the original name of the community. Right. So. And Pomfret is the name of a place in England in, in, that it was named after or no? Yeah, yeah and, it's, and, and Pomfret, um, also known like in England as Pontefract, um, they're basically they're almost kind of interchangeable in England, but um, that was discussed, uh, there was a, uh, there was a, I believe it was a poem, I think it was a poem by Shakespeare, um, or a short story, and basically uh, Shakespeare makes reference to uh, Pontefract or Pomfret Castle um, in the poem, and uh, I think when, again, the founders in our area were looking at naming things, like the, the town of Pomfret's birth birthplace uh, or birth time was 1808 that was when the town was officially created um it was again that thought that we want to have more of a european culture kind of sound and using something from a shakespeare uh uh, story made sense to them like that's very cultured and i think that was just that was just the reason behind it. I don't think there was any other connection other than that. It sounded good and had that Shakespeare connection. And, and you know, Lilydale, where'd that come from? What I understand on the Lilydale name is, I believe the, um, 
the area kind of is known as kind of a dale, as in like the geographical term. But then the uh, the lily part came from the number of uh, water lilies, like on Casadega Lake, which of course Lilydale is located right on Casadega Lake, and it was the lily, the lilies in the lake combined with the dale to make the lily dale. And then there's the the local story also that there was the pair pair of Canadian geese that. Uh, 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 made their home on the lake there, uh, male and female, Lily and Dale. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's a popular <laughs> story that's told told in the area that it, it's from that. But I think the, the 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 one that's most people probably realize would be that the Lily and the Dale come from the just the area itself being kind of a Dale, and also that the Lily's on the lake. So I think that's kind of where it comes from. Well, Todd Langworthy, I thank you very much uh, for joining us and. I hope you have a, have a good summer. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It was a pleasure to be with you, and uh, anytime I'd be happy to join you again. Todd Langworthy, a retired high school history teacher who is town historian in Pomfret, New York, out in western New York in Chautauqua County. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.